You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn now in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. We're going to read together verses 4 through 8. A bit of a longer passage that we're looking at today, which is always great on a potluck Sunday to have a longer passage staring you in the face. Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. We begin at verse 4 and we'll read through the end of verse 8. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Then I looked again at vanity vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord, it is our desire that you would sanctify us through your truth, by your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, as we meditate upon these truths and as we seek to understand them in their context. May you be glorified through lives that are lived for your honor and for your glory, and lives that are wholly submitted to you. Do that work in our hearts, we pray, through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. Have you ever given any thought to how much of your life you spend working? I hate to start off with a depressing question like that. No, actually, I intend to start off with a depressing question like that. Have you ever given any thought to how much of your life you spend working? You show up at school at the age of six, and you spend the next 12 to 20 years working at school and then doing homework so that you can prepare to get out of school and go to work. And then you go to work, and if you are working eight hours a day, five days a week, you work 40 hours of your uh, of your work 40 hours of your work days is spent working now I can do that math because I went to public school that's complex math it took me 12 years to figure out how to do that but I did it now during your work week during your five days you spend a third of your time at work eight hours out of 24 hours is spent working more complex math eight hours out of your 24 is spent working and eight hours out of your 24 hours that day are spent sleeping The good news is you have another eight hours in that day that you can spend doing whatever you want, right? But doesn't it seem as if you spend that eight hours that's yours free to use as if you are kind of waking up from sleeping and then getting ready to work and then traveling to work and then traveling home from work and then sort of recovering from work and then getting ready to go to sleep again? That's your eight hours that you spend not at work and not at sleep. And you do that for five days out of your week, and then your Saturdays and your Sundays are spent working on things that you didn't have time to work on during the week because you were at work, working. So given that so much of our life is dedicated to working, given that that is what we are created and designed to do, it should not surprise us that Solomon addresses work and labor and the fruit of our labor so many times as he does in the book of Ecclesiastes. Work is not a curse. Sometimes it feels as if it is a curse, but work itself is not a curse. Work is part of God's original creation. He made Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden and he gave them the task of exercising dominion over creation and bringing creation in under submission, under their headship. 
and of planting a garden and of tending the garden and producing food. And they were to work. And they were created to work. And they were created to enjoy work. And work was created as a blessing and a gift to us so that we might take joy in that because God is a working God and God as a working God has created us in His image so that we too might work. So it is not work that is a curse to us, but our work has been cursed because of the fall. So when Adam fell, now because of Adam's sin, when we work, we work and it causes us to sweat and we have to rest from it. And this fallen creation sometimes saps the joy out of work that should be there, the enjoyment of work that should be there, the delight that we ought to have in it. Sometimes this fallenness and the curse robs us of the fruit of our labor so that we end up working sometimes, fighting against the curse, and then find that we have done that and have nothing to show for it. But it's not work itself that is a curse. It is our work that is cursed. And someday when we are in the new heavens and the new earth, we will work and we will delight in our work and we will enjoy that work and we will serve God in the capacity that He has given us to serve using our glorified bodies in a new heavens and a new earth to worship and to serve Him. And that will be and is part of His blessing to us in the future. So work is so much a part of our lives, so many days of our lives, so many hours of our lives are spent working. It's what we're created to do, what we're designed to do, we're to take joy in it. And now Solomon addresses the subject of work. But when Solomon talks about work in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's not always positive. In fact, most of the time that Solomon discusses or describes work, it's in a, in a negative way, in a negative connotation. In fact, he uses words in Ecclesiastes that have singularly a negative meaning. That is, there's no positive connotation to it. When I say work, and I just use the English word work, that can, that can have a negative connotation or a positive connotation. Hey, my, my car works. That's a good thing, right? That's a positive, a positive way of describing work. But man, that was hard work. That's the same word, but there's a negative connotation to that. Well, there are words that Solomon uses to describe work, like labor, toil, grievous task, effort, uh, work, that are singularly negative in their connotation. Now, there are positive things that Solomon says later on in Ecclesiastes. We're not going to get to them today. Today we're just dealing with the negative stuff. But there's positive stuff that Solomon says later on in the book of Ecclesiastes about work. But today we're just looking at work, but particularly work as it is characterized by a solitude and a loneliness. That's what this passage is all about. Now, I mentioned last week in chapter 4 that one of the themes that follows its way all the way through chapter 4 is this theme of loneliness. Ten times the idea of loneliness or being alone or lacking companionship is either mentioned directly, explicitly, or alluded to in chapter 4. So that's kind of amongst all of these subjects, oppression and being a king and and work that is mentioned in chapter 4, that loneliness, idea of loneliness and companionship sort of weaves its way all the way through. So Solomon, in verses 4 to 8, is describing work as it is characterized as a, as a lonely task, a task that some men do all by themselves, without any companion, without any heir, and you'll see that as we work our way through here. So we're looking at verses 4 to 8. It is work as it is characterized by loneliness. It's a lonely work. Now, there's something about the structure of this passage that I need to make you aware of because it's going to affect how it is that we look at it and how I work our way through this. Normally, on Sunday mornings, I start at the top of the passage, kind of work our way down through, and I give to you an outline, and we... We start at the top and we go all the way down to the bottom until we get to the last verse. We're doing something different today because the, the structure of the passage is, is somewhat different. This, the, the passage is structured in what is called an inclusio. That is a Latin word that refers to something that is enclosed or surrounded. And it was a literary device where the author would start off with like one subject and he would encapsulate, he would encapsulate the ideas of the teachings on a subject between two statements to sort of parallel each other. So it's like bookends, if you will, of a, of a passage. That's what an inclusio is. There are all kinds of different inclusios in literature, 
and particularly in Scripture. Some are big and some are small. And verses 4 to 8 is an inclusio. An inclusio is, is text bracketed. And sometimes you can have extensive bracketings of text where you have two parallel ideas and then inside of that two parallel ideas until you get to the center of the passage. And that's kind of the main idea. And so you could work your way, you know, sort of in a decreasing outline, A, B, C, C, B, A, back like that. Or you could work from outside the text to the inside or from inside to out, however you want to do it. But it's a literary technique intended to sort of bracket ideas. Have you ever stepped into a, a supermarket and you get in between one of those display cases where they got mirrors on both sides? You step in between that and you kind of glance one way and you see this infinite regression of mirrors? That's kind of what an inclusio is, these parallel ideas, these mirror images that sort of work, stack themselves one on top of another. And in Scripture, there are big inclusios that take entire chapters to develop. Um, you can have them sometimes bracketed in large portions of a book by this, these series of brackets, and sometimes very small. Verses 4 to 8 is an inclusio, and here's how it's structured. Verse 4 and verse 8 both give us two different examples, or give, both give us an example of lonely work. There's a man described in verse 4, there's a man described in verse 8 at the top and the bottom of the passage. And now working inward from that, then there is at the end of verse 4 and in verse 7, the statement that these things are vanity. There's a reference to vanity. Then you get in verses 5 and 6, and that's sort of the heart or the middle of the passage. And that is the wisdom on this subject that Solomon wants to communicate in verses 5 and 6. So you have these two men who are each an example of lonely work, the statement of vanity, and then the middle of the passage. And so these are consecutive brackets. You see how it's structured? So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at verses 4 and 8 together, and then we're just going to work our way from the outside to the inside of the passage and end with the wisdom that Solomon gives us in verses 5 and 6. All right? So first up, lonely work. An example of lonely work in verse 4. I have seen that every labor and every skill that is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Now we all got into the second bracket there, the beginning of verse 4, this description of this man, uh, of, of every deed and every labor that is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This is one example of lonely work. Now when Solomon says every labor and every deed or every labor, every work and every task, he's using something of a hyperbole. Because you and I understand that not every single thing that is done is the result of rivalry between two people. When we set up here for our potluck after our service today, we all clean up and we set out our dishes and we sit down to eat. We're not doing all of that work and labor because we are competing with one another, right? Not because we're jealous with one another. There's no rivalry there. It's just that we want to eat. So sometimes it's so not every act and not every skill and not every labor is done because we are a rivalry with somebody else. When I mow my lawn, it's not because I want my lawn to look better than my neighbor's lawn. It's because I like a clean-cut lawn. I clean my garage, not because I want my garage to be cleaner than my neighbor. It's because I like a clean garage. So not every skill and not every labor that is done is the result of rivalry. But Solomon is looking at, generally speaking, life under the sun, and he is describing something that is true far too often. And that is that when we employ skills and when we labor in something, we are doing something because we are at rivalry, the NASB says, against another person. Now, the term rivalry there, if you have another translation, is probably a better translation because the term rivalry is not the best translation of that Hebrew word. That Hebrew word is only translated rivalry in the NASB one time, and that's really not, not its essence or its, its meaning. It is translated as anger one time, as envy one time, as passion once, and as rivalry once. But it is translated as zeal 14 times and as jealousy 24 times. And jealousy really is the key to understanding that that passage. I have seen that jealousy is what motivates men in their use of their labor and in their skill. It's not rivalry, it's not competition, 
is the jealousy that Solomon is describing here. So it would have been better if he were to say, in verse 4, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is motivated by jealousy between a man and his neighbor. That would be a better translation. Now, there are two misuses of this verse that I want you to be aware of. And both of these misuses stem from the same problem. That is a lack of understanding. What's being described here is jealousy and not rivalry. Here's the first misuse of the verse. Some people say that this verse is commending capitalism. Because that every work and every skill, as if Solomon is commending this, that every work and every skill which is done is the result of competition. And that what Solomon is describing is that good aspect of competition between two people who want to secure more customer base and make more sales and make a better product at a cheaper price to secure more of the market. And that every skill and every labor that is done is the result of this friendly competition in the marketplace which lowers prices for everybody and improves quality for everybody and makes industry much more efficient. And that Solomon is commending this and that that's what the verse is talking about. And you say, but at the end of the verse, it says, this too is vanity and striving after wind. Yeah, yeah, they would say, but that describes the lazy man in verse 5 and not the rivalry of verse 4. That's what they would say. Now, that's one misuse of, of that verse. I had one commentary kind of summarized it in that way. There's a second misuse of the verse, and that is to say that this verse is disparaging capitalism. Because Solomon is saying that this rivalry that exists between people where we do what we want to do because we want to have the lowest prices and secure most customer base and, and therefore get an advantage over somebody else, that that's what Solomon is calling uh, vanity and striving after win. And he is saying that this is an evil desire and an evil motivation. Now listen, this verse is not describing capitalism at all. Neither positively nor negatively. That is not, un, that is not under Solomon's radar at all. He's not describing capitalism. He is not describing the free exchange of capital for products and services between individuals, nor is he affirming that it is better to have a government-run confiscation and redistribution of wealth, which is socialism. He's not describing either one of those. He is describing the attitude of the heart that says, I see what my neighbor has, and I want that. And so I'm going to give myself to my labor, and I'm going to work industriously so that I can have what he has. He has a nicer car than I do. I want to have a nicer car than he does. He has a newer this and a bigger house. The Jones just did a remodel. I've got to do a remodel. The the Smiths just got a new kitchen. I have got to get a new kitchen. It is that covetous envy, that zealous jealousy that sees what somebody else has and says it's newer and better and flashier and, and bigger than mine, and so I have to have that. And so this man employs his skill and his labor in order that he may acquire only because he wants to keep up with the Joneses. It is that keeping up with the Joneses' desire of the heart that Solomon is addressing here. Neither capitalism nor socialism is in view. It is that motive of jealousy between a man and his neighbor. I've seen that every task, every labor, every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. So it is not, it is not capitalism that is being described. Now, jealousy in Scripture is sometimes used in a positive sense and sometimes used in a negative sense. It's used here in a negative sense. And I'll give you a couple other examples of what Scripture says jealousy does to us. Proverbs 6.34, For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. Proverbs 14.30, A tranquil heart is life to the body, but jealousy, or passion as it is translated here, but passion, jealousy, is rottenness to the bones. See, when you are motivated by jealousy over what somebody else has, and you have to have what they want, that, that passion or that jealousy, when it is unsatiated, unsatisfied, results in bitterness and resentment and anger toward your neighbor because you cannot have what he has. Now, does that sound like a recipe for friendship and companionship? Now, the man described in verse 4 
is a lonely man at his work because all of his companions are re- all of his would-be companions are his competitors. You can't if you're jealous of your neighbor, you can't rejoice when they rejoice. You can't be happy with their gain. You can't rejoice in their blessings. You can't be thankful that God has given them something that He hasn't given you. You can't truly be a friend in any meaningful sense. You can't truly have a companion. A jealous man is a lonely man because jealous men are bitter men. They're angry men. There's rottenness in their bones. And they can't truly be friends with anybody because they can't be happy with what anybody else has received. Because once that person has received something, they have to have it. And there are other, there are other sins that are wrapped up in this negative use of, of, of jealousy or this negative idea of jealousy. The sin of discontentment. That he has something that I don't have and therefore I am not content with what I have had. And discontentment causes us to look at everything that we have received, every blessing that we have been given, and to see, and to make little of it compared to the blessings that our neighbor has received. That's discontentment. There's the sin of ingratitude there. You're not really thankful for what you have received because what you really want is what they have received. So there's ingratitude. There's greed. There's selfishness. There's pride. There's envy. All of that is wrapped up in this motive of jealousy. I've seen that every skill, and again, it's hyperbole, every skill and every labor that is done under the sun is the result of this jealousy between a man and his neighbor. Now, there is a good use of the term jealousy, and it is when you are rightly zealous or jealous for something that belongs to you. For instance, God is jealous of us in the sense that, not that we have something that He doesn't have, but God is jealous of us in the sense that God wants to guard us, and He wants us to have a pure and undefiled and exclusive relationship with Him where He is our God and our only God. And He has a place in our lives and in our hearts and our affections that nothing else in the world has. And God is jealous of that in that He desires that and He wants to guard that. And why is He jealous of that? Not for His good, but really for our good. Second, God is jealous for His own glory, to defend it, to display it, to guard it, and to protect it. God is jealous of His glory. And that's a good thing because the glorification of God actually results in the good of His people. And the good of His people is the glory of God. So God is jealous, and there's a good jealousy, and there's a bad jealousy. If I'm I'm jealous of my wife, that is a good jealousy. I want to have an exclusive relationship with her that no other man has, that I have with no other women. I guard that. I'm jealous of it, and that is a good jealousy. But if I'm jealous of another man's wife, you can tell that the same emotion is completely sinful and illicit. So there's a good jealousy and a bad jealousy. This is the bad jealousy. It is desiring something that you are not entitled to, that you do not does not belong to you, that you have not worked for, you have not earned, it belongs to somebody else, and you want it, and you want to match it. That makes for a lonely man, that type of jealousy. Now look down at the second example of a lonely of a man working in loneliness, verse 8. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Now this second man, and notice that it's kind of general. How Both of these descriptions are very generic. In that Solomon doesn't say, I knew a man, his name was Asaph. Or I knew a man, his name was Levi. He doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't have a specific person in mind. And again, I think that the generality here, the, the genericness of this is intended for us to fill into our minds examples that we know of in our own lives, people we have met or people we have known that, uh, that, that would fit this description. There's a certain man and he has no dependent. I want you to notice this man is all alone. He has no dependent, which would refer to either his wife or his children. He doesn't have kids and he doesn't have wife, a wife. He has nobody that is dependent upon his labor. Nobody. Nobody will be worse off if he works less. Because nobody depends upon him to bring home a paycheck. The only one that he has to support is himself. 
So he is complete without dependent. Further, he is without an heir. He has neither a son nor a brother. So in the event that he dies, all that he has amassed, all his barns full of plenty, will go to somebody else. And it kind of, it kind of strikes you like what Solomon said back in chapter two. I have amassed all of these things, and yet I have to die and turn it over to another man, and who knows whether he will be a fool or a wise man. You, you don't know that. I may end up giving it to the man who has not worked for it and does not deserve it. That was Ecclesiastes chapter two. And here he is expressing a, a similar sentiment. This man has nobody dependent upon him. And furthermore, he has no heir. So if he dies and he leaves nothing behind him, he's not harming anybody. Not harming anybody. Because there's nobody that is dependent upon him to give to them a, an inheritance. And so this man has no dependent. He has no wife. He has no children. And he has no heir. He has no brother. And yet this man works and he works like a dog feverishly. Actually, I don't think he works like a dog. I've never known a dog that worked. And we relax like dogs. We work like a, works like a horse. That's what he works like, if you know a working horse. He works hard, let's just say that. He is industrious and he works hard. And the company calls and they demand more and he obliges and he gives in. And he spends his nights and his weekends and his afternoons and his mind does not rest and he is continually at work, never ceasing in his labor, always working, and yet he is completely and utterly alone. He is like the man described in Psalm 39, verse 6 that we read at the beginning of our service. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. Nobody there to gather them. No dependent. No heir. And yet he just works. And he works consciously. You know people like this? Nobody's dependent upon them. They harm nobody by taking a day off. But you can't convince them to take a day off if your life depended on it. Because they just work endlessly. And Solomon says in verse 8, and yet there was no end to all his labor. All he did was work. And he constantly worked. And what was his motivation for it? Because his eyes are not satisfied with the things that are his. That is in verse 8. His eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, for whom am I depriving myself of pleasure? For whom am I working and depriving myself of pleasure? His eyes are never satisfied. That is a, a phrase that Solomon has already used in Ecclesiastes. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, Solomon said, All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor is the ear filled with hearing. In Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, Solomon says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Proverbs 27, 20 says, The death and the abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. Death is never satisfied. Death never gets to the point where somebody dies and death finally says, Okay, that's enough. I've taken enough people. The rest of you can just go on living. Death is never satisfied. It consumes everything. And so are the eyes of man. It's part of our fallenness, that our eyes are not satisfied with seeing. This man's eyes are not satisfied with the wealth that he has attained. This man sees what he has, and it is not enough. Now, I want you to notice that there are some, there may be some reasons here for this, this hypothetical man in verse 8, for his isolation. Solomon could have described this man this way and said, I once knew a man, and he did not have a wife. He had a wife at one time, but he worked. He worked days, he worked nights, he worked weekends, he worked holidays, he worked his vacation, and he worked... And he was always on call. He never had any time with his wife. He had a wife at one time, but his wife left him. Why? Because his work was his wife, and his work was his mistress, and his work was his family. And his wife never saw him, and his wife left him. And now he is all alone. And now he works in loneliness, and he has no dependent. Or Solomon said, I once knew a man who didn't have any children. Could have had children, but we all know that children are expensive. They are a drain on your resources. They are a drain on your energies. They are a drain on your finances. They are a drain on your house. They are a drain on all of your possessions. They are a drain on everything. We know this is true, right? And, and there's no way you can get ahead if you have kids. You can't have cash if you have teenagers. 
You can't have you can't have food in the house. You can't have extra anything in the house because they consume them like a bunch of locusts. They come into the house and they consume everything and they leave you with nothing. And you can never get ahead when you have these big money pits sitting in the nest inside your house. Right. And so this man, knowing that, decided I'm not going to have any kids. Why? Because they consume everything. And so he has no son. He has no dependent. There's nobody depending upon him because he has no kids. This man ends up consuming himself. It's kind of generic, isn't it? Do you think of people like this? Now, there's some people who can't have kids. I'm not talking about you. Don't, don't twist this into something that it is not. But when your motivation is to have more of everything because your eyes cannot be satisfied with what you have, you end up being very alone. And in fact, this is really the, the, the it is a path to self-destruction. This man consumes himself. Look, now, I want you to notice there are similarities between this man in verse 8 and the man in verse 4. There are things that these two men have in common. Number one, they are constantly working. The man in verse 4 is constantly working, motivated by his jealousy because he always can find a neighbor who has more than he has. There will always be that guy who has a bigger house, a bigger car, more stuff. There will always be that guy. So you can never stop working because just about the time that you think that you have you have acquired everything to match the, your neighbor and you think you almost can be at rest, you're going to find out you can't be because then you're going to find out that your neighbor knows a guy and you go golfing with him and he's got a nicer golf cart than you do. Now you got something else that you have to have. You can never stop working. Both these men work ceaselessly. The second man works because he is motivated by what he sees, what he's, the lack of what, or what he perceives as a lack in front of him. He desires more and wants more and his eyes cannot be satisfied to look upon the fruit of his labor. So both of these men work ceaselessly. Second, neither of these men, both of them, have this in common. Neither of them can really enjoy what they have. The jealous man cannot enjoy what he has because it's not what his neighbor has. So he can't be content with what he has and enjoy the gifts that God has given to him and recognize that he is unworthy of them and enjoy the fruit of his labor and delight in it. He can take no joy in that. He can't enjoy what he has because he doesn't have what his neighbor has. The second man cannot enjoy what he has because it is not enough. And he is always thinking to himself, once I get this amount, then I will be able to sit back and rest and enjoy it. So neither, both of these men work ceaselessly. Neither of them can enjoy the fruit of their labor. But there is something that distinguishes the two that they don't have in common. Namely, that the man who is motivated by jealousy is always looking outside at what others have and comparing himself with others. And he works ceaselessly to try and acquire what his neighbors have. The second man is not looking at what other people have. He may not even be, he may not even be aware of what other people have, has. He may not even care what other people have. He just knows that he doesn't have enough. He may not even be aware that he is not where his neighbor is at. That is irrelevant to him. He doesn't compare himself with others. He compares himself with himself. And he has this goal, and he has an idea of what is enough, and he never has enough. That's the second man. So both of these men are examples of lonely labor, and neither of them stop to ask themselves, for whom am I doing this? The first man might be doing this so that his neighbor will think more highly of himself. Or for other people. For whom am I doing this? The second man never stops to ask himself, why do I work constantly? Who is going to benefit from this? The obvious answer to that is that nobody will benefit from this. He just wants more. That's his motivation. Now, is there an answer to this? There is. Let's move to the next bracket inside of our inclusio. We've looked at the top and the bottom, the, the two examples of lonely work that Solomon sort of brackets this text with. Moving inward from that, you see at the end of verse 4 that Solomon says, this too is vanity and striving after wind. And then you see in verse 7, then I looked again at the vanity under the sun. Verse 4 describes the vanity, verse 4 is referencing the vanity described at the top of that verse, the man who is motivated by jealousy for what his neighbor has. 
Verse 7 describes the vanity that is to follow that he describes in verse 8. So we're moving in. These are the two examples, and they are both described as vanity, striving after wind, chasing after wind. And now we get to the heart of the passage, which is the wisdom concerning work in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. Now this is wisdom literature at its best. This is this is wisdom. It's in a pr- proverbial form. Short, pithy, concise, kind of loaded statements that are, that are packed with meaning and significance. That's something that you would expect to read, for instance, in the book of Proverbs. So this is Solomon's style. There is, there is wisdom at the heart of this passage. And then as you move out from the wisdom, you get these examples of vanity, which is the opposite of the wisdom that is contained in verses five and six. So what is the, what is the answer to the cease, the man who works ceaselessly because he is jealous in verse four and the man who works ceaselessly because he is greedy in verse eight? What is the answer to that? Well, first Solomon gives us the wrong answer, and that's in verse 5. This is the wrong answer. This is wisdom concerning what is foolishness or folly. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. What does that mean? You fold your hands and consume your own flesh. What does it mean to fold your hands? This is a foolish thing to do, so this is the wrong answer. What is the wrong answer to ceaseless work? It's folding of your hands. Now, folding of the hands is a is a phrase used in wisdom literature repeatedly to describe inactivity. I'll give you a couple of examples. Proverbs 6, verses 9 to 11. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Now here the author quotes the sluggard. Here's what the sluggard says. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Likewise, in Proverbs chapter 24, the same phrase is used to describe the man who owns a vineyard and the author of Proverbs says, I was walking past the vineyard of a sluggard, and I saw in the vineyard of the sluggard that it was all overgrown with thistles and nettles, and, and it was unkempt, and weeds had taken over it, and the stone wall was broken down so that nobody protected it, and wild boars would come in and eat it all up and, and devour it, and it was a horrible sight. And Solomon reflected upon the man who owned the vineyard that he was a sluggard. And so then Solomon says this in Proverbs 24:33: A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, then your poverty will come in like a robber, and your want like an armed man. What does it mean to fold your hands? Like this. Just fold your hands. Active hands are doing work, providing for your needs, planting, sowing, reaping, roasting your prey, all of that. Folded hands just means you put your hands in front, you fold them up, and it is a picture of complete inactivity. Complete inactivity. The foolish man folds his hands. Verse 5. The fool folds his hands and so he consumes his own flesh. So the folding of the hands describes the complete inactivity of the sluggard, the sloth, the lazy man, And what is the result? He consumes his own flesh. What does that mean? It means that as a result of his inactivity and his sloth and his sluggardness, as a result of the fact that he never works, this is the other extreme, as a result of the fact that he never works because he folds his hands and doesn't do anything, he has to consume his own flesh. So he has nothing to eat. He has nothing to eat. So he just gnaws on his arm. That's all he's got. So it is the image of somebody who is starving to death because he has not worked enough to provide for himself. It's also the image of self-destruction. It communicates the idea of self-destruction. How long can you live if you consume your own flesh? Kind of a graphic image, isn't it? Solomon is really saying that the person who has who folds his hands and does nothing, he receives nothing for the work that he doesn't do, and because of that he is hungry and he eats ends up eating himself. Cut off well, you can't cut off your hands. You can't start there, right? That would be short lived, but you cut off maybe your feet and then your legs and you eat yourself, you cannibalize yourself. It's the image of, of self cannibalization, self destruction. Because he has nothing. 
Here's what some of the other Proverbs say. Proverbs 12, verse 27, A lazy man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of a man is diligence. A lazy man does not roast his prey. He goes out, he shoots it, and he looks at it and says, man, that's a lot of work. I'll just go inside and fold my hands, do nothing. He's going to be hungry. Proverbs 13, 4, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Proverbs 19, 15, Laziness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle man will suffer hunger. Proverbs 20, verse 4, the sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. Matthew Henry said, idleness is a sin that carries its own uh, its, its own consequences. Idleness is the sin that carries its own consequences. If you're idle and you do nothing and you fold your hands and you're a sluggard and a sloth, and all you're interested in is sleep and slumber and rest and relaxation, if that's all you do, then you have nothing. And you are a man who will end up consuming himself and destroying himself. Now both... This is really the path to self-destruction. And both overwork and overrest, both ceaseless labor and ceaseless leisure are both paths to self-destruction and to ruin. The man who, who never stops working destroys himself because he, 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 he is never able to enjoy the fruit of his labor. He's never able to enjoy the gift of life and the gifts that life brings. He's never able to enjoy those things. And really, he is destroying himself because he's working himself into a grave, never asking himself, for whom am I doing this and, 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 and depriving myself of pleasure? The sluggard destroys himself because he doesn't do anything. You see, these are two opposite extremes. Do you see that? Both of these men that we've talked about in verse 4 and verse 8 are always working and never resting. The fool in verse 5 is always resting and never working. So the answer to ceaseless labor is not ceaseless leisure. That's not the answer. So is there a middle ground? Is there a balance between the two? And the answer to that is yes, in verse 6. Look at verse 6. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. I almost don't even need to comment on that, right? After we've worked our way from the outside of the passage to the inside of the passage, you understand what Solomon is saying. There is an issue with ceaseless labor, and there is an issue with ceaseless leisure. And neither of these are right or proper or honoring to God at all. And so there is a proper way, and it is, as Solomon says, one handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. Now, there's something in the original language, the Hebrew here, that is difficult to capture in any English translation. It is the fact that in verse 6, there are two different words that are used for hands. At the beginning of verse 6, when Solomon says, one handful of rest, he is describing there what we would typically see as one hand sort of held up like this that is grasping something or holding on to something. One handful of rest. But then at the end of verse 6, or the second half of verse 6, when he says two fists full of labor, it's a different word for hand that is not speaking of just an open hand like this, holding or grasping onto something. Verse six, at the end of verse 6, the two fists full, and the NASB kind of captures the idea that there are two different words used here by translating one as hand and one as fist, but it doesn't quite capture this idea. The two fists full refers not to fists like this, full of something, gripping onto something, but two hands cupped together like this, holding something. That's the idea. Now, if you want to hold as many M&Ms as you can, which is the best way to do it? To have two hands like this holding M&Ms individually or to cup your hands together like this? So the imagery that Solomon is employing is two hands cupped together like this so that you can hold absolutely as much as you possibly can. But what is it that we hold on to as much as we possibly can with those cupped hands? What does the text say? Verse 6. It's two hands full of labor and what? Wind. It's exactly what I'm holding here. See that? The wind in my hand? What is it? What would you, how would you also describe that? Nothing. And that's the point of the imagery. So it is better, Solomon says, to have one hand that is holding on to rest 
one hand full of rest and another hand full of labor. That is better than two fists cupped together full of labor. To have one hand that is grasping rest. And so this is the balance that Solomon is describing here. It is better to have one hand that is holding rest than it is to have two fists cupped together full of, of labor and striving after wind. If you have two cups, two hands cupped together holding on to wind and striving after that, what you really have at the end of that is absolutely nothing. But the imagery is of a man who is holding as much of vanity as he can possibly hold. Get that in your mind. As much of vanity as he can possibly hold. Solomon says, if you want vanity, hold on a little bit of it, the work, with one hand and grab a little bit of rest with the other hand. And by rest, Solomon is not just talking about sleep. Don't think that. Solomon doesn't have to talk to us about the wisdom of sleep. We all have to sleep. Even if we try not to sleep, you'll eventually sleep because your body will eventually say, look, it's time to sleep and you won't be able to avoid it. So Solomon is not just describing sleep in his proper role. He is describing here the leisure that goes with the rest. It is taking time and pausing to delight in what God has given to us, to rejoice in his gifts, to enjoy the fruit of the labor. It would be as if Solomon were to say this. Look, don't cup your hands together to take as much labor as you possibly can, but stop for a moment and, and grab a good book and sit down next to the fire. Enjoy a good book. Go out and sit down in the backyard by the fire or in the shade and relax a little bit. Go for a weekend vacation getaway with your wife and your kids. You get a bonus at work, take that bonus and take your wife out to a nice meal or go away for a vacation for a weekend or something. Enjoy some rest. Enjoy some leisure and some relaxation. You don't have to spend all of your time, every waking moment, every waking second, every night and every weekend working and laboring and striving. Take a little bit of rest with that and some relaxation. It, it kind of goes back to what Solomon has said in other passages that we've already looked at. It is good for a man to delight in the gifts that God has given to him and to enjoy the fruit of his labor because this too, Solomon says, is the gift of God, to enjoy the fruit that comes from the hard work. So he's not saying don't work. He's not saying don't rest. He is saying take a little bit of work and a little bit of rest. There are other Proverbs that also describe this. Proverbs 15, 16 and 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox with hatred. And Solomon is saying that there, there are times and situations where it is better to have a little bit. Like, for instance, it is better to have a little and to enjoy all of it than to have everything and enjoy none of it, right? Which is better? It is better to have just a little bit. Bread and water, but it's enjoyment and a delight, and I delight in it, and I see the gift of God in it, and I enjoy that as the fruit of my labor. That is better than having fields or cat, uh, mountains full of cattle and never enjoying any of it. Better is a little with the enjoyment of it than a lot with no enjoyment. Proverbs 16.8, better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Proverbs 17.1, better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. And Psalm 37, verse 16, better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. So these are better than. It's better to have a little bit. A little bit of what? A little bit of rest and a little bit of labor. Now you may say, Jim, if I slow down and I stop working and I enjoy some rest, I'm going to have less. I'm going to have less of this world's goods. I'm going to have less income. I'm going to have less than my neighbor. I'm going to have less retirement. I'm going to have less. That's true. You will have less. You will have less to insure, less to replace, less to worry about, less to fix, less to guard, less to protect, less to lose, less to have stolen, and less to give to somebody else when you die, which you will. So you'll have a lot less. But less isn't bad, is it? It's not. So there is wisdom here. And here is the wisdom that like in many areas of our Christian life, we glorify God when we strike a balance in these things. 
Now, when I talk, when we talk about delighting and having pleasure and enjoying life and things like that, obviously we're not talking about sinful vices or the, the carnal indulgence of the flesh. You guys know that. But we are talking about striking a balance between these two extremes. And much of our Christian life is about that. So where are you at on this spectrum between the man who works ceaselessly and the person who is, is ceaseless leisure and who never works? Are you somewhere on that spectrum, somewhere in between those two extremes? There might be some of us here who need a good kick, a swift kick in the pants. And say, look, unfold your hands and get to work. And stop living off the benefits of other people. Stop expecting other people to care for you. You can work and you should work and you need to get to work and provide for your family and provide for your needs and to do those things which are right and appropriate. And if you're not going to work, neither should you eat. Some people need that incentive. Others of us need to be told, look, slow down a little bit. Enjoy life. It's not horrible. It's not unbiblical. There's sound wisdom in that. Enjoy the fruits of, of the labor that God has given to you. Don't stop working. Don't stop resting. And have a little bit of bull. Now, Jim... Where on the spectrum should I be? Tell me exactly how many hours a day I should be working and how many hours a day I should be resting. I can't do that because everybody's different, right? Now, we, Solomon has explained to us what these two extremes are because he has described them both. So we know that what the one extreme is, ceaseless labor, we know what it looks like to be ceaselessly at leisure. And somewhere in between those two extremes, there is this massive spectrum. And we ought to find ourselves somewhere on that spectrum in between. It will change. Seasons of life are different. Sometimes you have to work more. Sometimes you can afford to work less. Sometimes leisure is more important. Sometimes work is more important. Sometimes you have kids. Sometimes you don't have kids. Sometimes there are different demands. And all of us are wired differently. Uh, I might look at some of you and think that, man, you don't have enough time of leisure in your life. And you might say, if I had any more time of leisure, I'd go nuts. But you have just a perfect balance. And you need to strike that balance. We glorify God. We glorify God when we enjoy the labor that He has given to us and we enjoy the leisure that He has planned for us. And we have a little bit of both. That's the wisdom of work. And in doing that, we avoid the lonely work of isolating ourselves because of our jealousy and isolating ourselves because of our greed. So may God be glorified in us as we seek to balance that in our lives to His honor and glory. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank You for the wisdom of Your Word and the very practical advice that Solomon offers here. Would You pray that You would give us wisdom to assess this in our own lives to see if we are too much at work or too much at leisure. And may we honor you through using and enjoying appropriately the gifts that you have bestowed upon us to do so reflecting upon your goodness and your kindness. And may we at the same time honor you by working at the task that you have called us to so that we might glorify you by being industrious and working with our hands to have, to give to you, to others, and to provide for our own needs. Thank you that you have called us to these things. Thank you that you've given us this wisdom and this clarity in your word. And we pray your blessing upon our time of fellowship for following Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.